because so much of the climate crisis narrative is very, it's so overwhelming, but it's really hard to wrap our heads around with these kind of, even the language we use is very, very broad or very, feels very distant or clinical or abstract. So I'm always interested in how do we act in those sort of smaller, more localized ways, create this deeper connection. And I think once we have that emotional connection, of course, there's the greater capacity to care. Welcome to Happy Athlete, a podcast about overcoming obstacles and sparking change in ourselves and the world. We'll dig into mindfulness, enhancing performance, jumpstarting our passions, and learn tools to be stronger, happier, more grateful, and at peace. Hi everyone, this is Sean. Welcome to another episode of Happy Athlete. Today we're speaking with Eski Britton. Named for a famous wave break off the coast of Northwest Ireland, her family actually brought the sport to Ireland and she was on her first board at the age of four. Though she's competed in and won many competitions, including the national championships, five times, surfing evolved into something much more emotional for her. After becoming the first woman to surf in Iran, she traveled back many times to help local women experience surfing and the ocean for the first time. She's now studying the relationship between human well-being and the ocean as part of a major European Union EU research program. She's the author of 50 Things to Do by the Sea and has a brand new book called Salt Water in the Blood. So, hey, congrats on the book and Iski, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me from across the ocean here on the west coast of Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Um, I finished your book up about a week and a half ago. It is it is it is fantastic, and there's so much I, I, I like about it. You know, I'm doing the show here in Pittsburgh, so we don't have any oceans nearby. But certainly, there's this this craving. You know, like when, when the summer hits, everybody wants to to go to a body of water. You know, we have a lake nearby. We go out of the ocean, so I find this you know, just really fascinating, like what you do. So I'm really glad that we can dive into this. But I, I want to ask you first about your grandmother, your grandmother, Mary, she, she was a, a pioneer. And I was hoping you could tell us a story about how she brought surfing to Ireland. Like, you know, for us here in the States, we think of, you know, surfing and, you know, the coast of California and Australia. But c- could you tell us about, tell us about your grandma? Yeah, what a story. Um, And such a pioneering woman in so many ways. So she ran a hotel business here in Rosnala in Donegal. And she kind of got that going in the 60s. So even tourism in Ireland in 1960s, we were kind of the bottom of the economic ladder in, in in all of Europe at the time too. Um, but she tapped into, I suppose, that Irish-American connection and began promoting tourism in, in the States back then and traveled to California. And 60s, you know, you've got the height off the whole like Beach Boy surf era, Malibu. And in fact, she stayed at a hotel right across the road from Malibu and saw the waves breaking there and then thought, hey, hang on a minute, we've got waves like that in, in front of um, the hotel back home in Donegal. And then from there, I don't even know how she managed to like, source the, the very first kind of surfboards or these 10-foot pop-out boards at the time and then get them back in, you know, into the country in Ireland, um, which was re- remarkable in itself. But then she also had five boys, including my dad. And so when these things arrived in the hotel, she had intended to, you know, have them for the tourists to use or put on display. Um, they got their hands on these surfboards and 
as they say, like kind of the rest is history. <laughs> but but it was many years of trying to even figure out what to do with them. So they, my dad would have been twelve at the time. He's kind of the middle brother. Um, and there's no wetsuits or no surfboard wax even. So I grew up with all these stories of ways to innovate with surf equipment and, you know, using melted, melted candle wax and trying to find different ways to stay warm in the water <laughs> um, and, and create their own kinds of wetsuits and things and learn from traveling surfers. So I really grew up with that, that immersion in it. Yeah, I was going to ask like how you actually learned because there, there's no instructors there. And I, I think somewhere in the book that you mentioned that you actually surfed in, in, in wool sweaters. Is that true? Yeah, well, I, I didn't. Luckily, <laughs> the wetsuits did start to come along. <laughs> but yeah, they even tried out. So we have these really thick uh, wool sweaters called iron sweaters in Ireland. Uh, they were knitted for fishermen traditionally in the offshore mm. islands. Uh, but when they get wet, they get really heavy, right? So they, they, they're warm, but once they're wet, they kind of like, yeah, they go, go down past your knees. Uh, so that didn't really work. And then for their hands, they even used those marigold washing up gloves, uh, the bright yellow ones to try to keep warm. And yeah. <laughs> so wow it just innovating whatever they could do well so so you got into surfing with, with your brothers doing it and, and your father and your family there how, how do you then make the jump to big wave surfing in ireland yeah i mean that's a good question it definitely wasn't uh, an immediate leap um so yeah myself and my sister uh, surf from a really young age and then but just maybe the nature of where we grew up in the northwest of Ireland it's exposed to so many of the biggest open ocean swells from the Atlantic we have a lot of kind of wild and powerful reef breaks so used to growing up around those kind of kind of heavier water anyways and then all oh, like a lot of the yeah my sort of wider family and cousins all surf too and one of my cousins, Neil Britton, and myself, we ended up getting into big wave surfing around, it was around 2010, so over a decade ago. Um, and I think the motivation was, yeah, <laughs> maybe a few different a few different motivators. It wasn't something I ever set out and intended to do, but at the, it's just the right timing, right place kind of scenario as well. So in Ireland, big wave surfing was kind of just starting to emerge with the advent of jet skis, opening up access to surf breaks we thought we could, couldn't could get to or else to ride waves we thought were impossible to paddle into. Um, and like a lot has changed since then. And literally where I live, the view from the window across the bay, I'm looking out at Mullockmore Headland, which is now famous around the world as one of sort of the big, biggest, heaviest wave spots. So that was in our backyard and we couldn't but, but be exposed by and inspired by other surfers, at first traveling surfers, traveling pros who came um, and witnessing that kind of just power and raw intensity. It has this weird pull and attraction, at least on me. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it took a while to get into like, cause there's so many other factors that need to come together in terms of the preparation and, um, and planning. And then that kind of being included in that very kind of niche tight knit world of, of big wave surfing as well was kind of difficult to break into. Mm. You talk a lot about in the book about the power of the, of the sea to heal. You have some great stories in there. And I was hoping you could share with us the one about the Chernobyl Children's Project, where there was people that came over and they saw the sea for the first time. Like, what, what, what was that experience like? Yeah, it was remarkable. I was like 10 years old at the time. And 
Howie's had this connection and awareness with the story of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster because it happened in 1986, the year I was born. And and then in Ireland, there was this um, charity set up by A.D. Roach called the Chernobyl Children's Project. Um, and it was the first, I suppose now looking back with the research that I do, the first example of the benefits of connecting with nature, outdoors, fresh air for restoring our health. But that was the idea that they would, you know, take... Um, kids who were recovering from illness, illnesses to to Ireland to sort of stay for the summer with Irish families and just get the boost of uh, exposure to a healthy environment for a while. Um, and then I met with them. They came down to Rasnala Beach where I learned to surf um, to to go surfing with them for the first time. But yeah, I just I've just grown up with the sea as my constant companion. I can't imagine not having it in my life. So just to see through other children's eyes meeting the sea for the first time and that whole mix of emotions that that brings up. And in a really short space of time, seeing the incredible transformation that happens when you get immersed in it through this really playful medium of surfing. And, and of course, not being able to speak each other's language or anything didn't really matter by the end of it, you know? <laughs> um, so that was a really powerful seed that was planted way back then for me. Yeah. And I, and I think you call it blue health. And the story about you going to Iran, there's there's so many layers to that. I was hoping you could get into the part about just the diversity. And I, and I assume like, were, were these women even allowed to do something like this at this point that when you went in there, they're just hoping you could get into all of that because that was just that was just fascinating. Yeah, so the, with blue health as well as this kind of term that's been coined within research and academia more so, but basically looking at the physical and mental health benefits mm -hmm. of being in, on, or near water. Um, very, very similar to Wallace J. Nichols' blue mind concept as well. So this sort of innate connection with water and its ability to heal and restore. Um, but my, I suppose, ex first experience of that, of how my relationship with the ocean shifted through surfing from this more sort of competitive, um, career into something that was like wow this this is a really powerful medium to create connection and and then also realizing too in somewhere like when I traveled to Iran in the Middle East which is a whole other story of how that even came about but the the experience of I suppose meeting other women and girls had this passion to try something new and experience surfing in such a different part of the world for the first time to realize that just the kind of unique and particular barriers that we face based on our gender and all these other factors and that the sea isn't freely accessible for all. So like, how do you begin to restore that as a inclusive space, a healing space? Um, and that, that was kind of the beginning of that journey there. But just, yeah, it was really remarkable again to see what can happen when those positive connections are enabled between, between us and the ocean in anywhere in the world. Yeah, it's such great work you're doing there. And and you're also doing a lot of work with climate change. And, and, and you mentioned like a disconnect that is like a major issue that we have in terms of actually acting on climate change. Can, can you explain what you mean by this? And, and, and also like how we can also reconnect again? Yeah, so I, I think if I was to pick one keyword for why I do what I do or what it's all about it would be that connection, you know, and restoring that, looking at the relationship between us and the rest of the environment as a kind of social ecologist, as it were. And I think when it comes to something like the climate crises and all the related crises that we're facing around with what's happening in the world right now, 
for me, it does come down to that disconnect. And often it's like, it's like the story of broken relationships, right? And we've been told and I don't believe this story that we're separate from nature, that we can use nature as a resource and commodify it um, <laughs> rather than seeing ourselves as completely interwoven with it. Um, and for me, I actually, there's real... I suppose there's real learning to be had in going back also to the Irish language, which again is another example of disconnect when you lose your connection to your indigenous language, for example. But in Irish, there's so many words that are as strongly associated that have this really powerful ecological meaning. And most of our place names, if you go back to the Irish origin, speak to the habitat and ecosystem or animals that were around then that are now since gone. Um, so for me, that was a really powerful way to begin to I suppose the need to bring meaning back into our relationship with the environment and uh, also the importance of the local because so much of the climate crisis narrative is very it's so overwhelming but it's really hard to wrap our heads around with these kind of even the language we use is very um very broad or very feels very distant or clinical or abstract um so I'm always interested in how do we uh, in those sort of smaller, more localized ways, create this deeper connection. And I think once we have that emotional connection, of course, there's the greater capacity to care. Yeah, that's great. And it actually, it's the question I, I had to ask you today, because you know the, the show, we do we talk a lot about mindfulness and meditation. And I, know, I was reading on your website that you're really into this. And um, so that's a perfect segue. I was hoping you could tell us about how your mindfulness practice impacts not just your surfing, but but, but all the work that you do right now. Yeah, it's, it's, I guess, looking at my relationship with surfing and how I've applied it in my life, it's in, in many ways a form of uh, mindfulness <laughs> practice in, or that kind of seeking that need to presence in the moment. Um, so, I, yeah, the, my, my kind of journey into the mindfulness practice actually began maybe with my big wave surfing and trying to find ways to uh, train the mind, you know, to enter that psychological state that wasn't in this reactive um red mind stress response or overwhelmed by fear but how do you actually train the mind to be calm and present and to yeah feel um I suppose feel all of what we're feeling and be be in the body is the, is the biggest sort of thing I've learned from from being in the ocean because it's so immersive and multisensory. That ability to be be embodied happens almost naturally. Um, but yeah, so I've I've really developed a hand in hand like with my mindfulness based practice with this relationship with the ocean. Um, and it, I mean, it's, it's just so, so applicable right now. I find myself more and more these last couple of years applying all my training from big wave surfing into the, just the everyday challenges we're facing. Mm. Mm. And I, I have to ask too, like, what is it like being a woman in, in a male dominated, you know, lineup, especially since you're doing like big wave surfing, have you noticed any, any positive changes with this recently? Yeah, it's it's been amazing to witness the I suppose the evolution of women surfing in particular. Uh, it's really exciting, and for me, I think when I was doing the big wave surfing, it, in part because I grew up with family support and mentorship that really helped. So I wasn't aware of this the gendered side of it for quite a while. But then once you go out and start traveling in the world, it becomes a lot more apparent, especially when you're trying to be like a female solo surf traveler that. It's just a very different experience as a woman. And then in big wave surfing, again, in the earlier days, there wasn't many of, of us doing it anyways, but certainly no women. 
in Ireland and even Europe at the time. And so you you definitely come under the spotlight. <laughs> um, I, the feeling is no different. I think whatever body you're in when you're in the water in those kinds of conditions, um, it kind of strips away all these identities we have, I feel, when you're you know, confronted with the power of the ocean in that way. But the reality is then of how it kind of gets portrayed or communicated back on land and in surf media. And of course, it's really celebrated and, and hone, they hone in on the fact that you're your gender, that you're a woman doing this. Um, but then it, it means that we end up carrying this extra expectation, or I did at least, of the need to, I suppose, not screw up. <laughs> because then that would be yeah, blamed possibly on my gender as well. But now we're seeing the whole the whole like stereotype being totally torn up and the script rewritten with what's possible, even in terms of human potential, um, male or female. But women just totally breaking the barriers when it comes to, in particular, big wave surfing, riding the biggest waves ever ridden, male or female, in a season, like with the likes of you know Maya Gabera and uh, Justine Dupont from France, and and also. The women in big wave surfing were at the vanguard of helping create that shift in women in professional surfing as well, acknowledging equal pay in the World Surfing League and also having, if there's a, a men's surfing event at a break, there has to also be a women's um, division mm. as well. So yeah, it's really exciting. The mindfulness, is, is that something that helps you like with the big waves? Like I, I can't imagine what it's like when you're out and you, know, you get under the, you know, the wave crashes and you're in the, in the washing machine, is, is that something where the, where, the, where the mindfulness has come into play to help you or it's just more than that? It's, it is that and, and so much more. I, what I would say is that the ability for me to enter that more, that meditative calm or state of mindfulness is amplified when I'm near water. Like it just makes it so much easier once I focus my senses and connect with the, the sea or a body of water it already starts to help um, create that state of mindfulness. And I mean, the, the science behind it is so fascinating as well. Like literally does alter our brain waves as if we were sitting and meditating, just looking at water. But then when you're in this scenario, when big wave serving is a little bit different because your body is just being, you know, surging with cortisol and adrenaline and all those emotions that to also that get triggered in order to get you out of a dangerous spot. So it's it's also useful to have that. But um, you don't want that to just be firing all the time. So how do you how do you control that or make the switch in those situations? So a lot of the training happens obviously before you enter the <laughs> arena, so to speak. And then it's um, for me, it was visualization really helped as well, along with with breath work and. Um, a lot of practices actually that free divers use, but the visualization and the repetition of it so that you're training that mind body connection so that when you are being pummeled underneath a wave <laughs> that's 20 or 30 foot in size and you're caught in this, you know, mild storm that feels like a, an avalanche, your mind is actually taking your body somewhere else back into that visualization space of like this deep womb, like cam, um, and the power of that is just kind of mind blowing. Um, it might only last a few seconds before the urge to like breathe really kicks in, but it does buy you time. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I, I just can't imagine. You, you mentioned that the brain can change just by looking at a body of water. And, it, and that made me think of um, my mother who has Alzheimer's when I uh, visit her, when she was able to, to still get into the car, I would take her nearby. There's, there's a lake there. We just drive and get out of the car. And it was, it was, it was so powerful. Like she would just like look at the water and just like start to smile and she would just stand there, wouldn't say a word, but I was hoping maybe you could speak to like the, like the, like the science behind that. Cause I think a lot of times we think about like, you know, the power of the ocean to heal and we understand like, you know, like that concept of going in the water and swimming and being part of it, but like just, just looking at it, maybe you could expand on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what is so exciting and makes it so accessible is, is just the, just looking at it or listening to it can be really powerful, yeah. but it means you can bring that into these therapeutic settings, like even into hospitals and, and then for treatment, like things like um, Alzheimer's too, just to help create that um, calm again in the body or mm-hmm. sensory reconnection. So there's a couple of things at play. One is that water is also really powerful kind of, um, leaves a really powerful imprint in our inner memories, like literally in our body mind. So if we have an experience from some other time in our life, the ability to sort of recall that and feel it in our body is, is very visceral, uh, be that positive or negative. So the same is holds true, of course, if you've had a negative experience, but it's possible to rewire that too. I can, I can speak more to that in a minute, but the other is, yeah, it means that, um, it allows, especially in cases where, you know, with, with mental illness too, and the memory, water has huge potential there to, to allow us to tap back into that emotional state again, to revisit um, the feeling we had when we were by water before, or even from a childhood memory. And it's being used even in settings where say in palliative care, or to ease pain, uh, to connect with, the memory of water through engaging the senses or through breathing as well as a way to connect with the rhythm of the ocean. Um, and so it's, it's huge. I think the potential there is huge. And then there's another layer to it as well with the actual immersion, say in cold water, they're finding the reason why it seems to have so many health benefits for our immune system, but also mental health that it releases this, um, protein in the brain that's linked with uh, reducing the risk of things like the onset of dementia with kind of this regular immersion in the water and all of these things would speak to that innate connection we have as humans with water that's just it's in our evolutionary biology um and and also speaks to the fact that however the water is doing is reflected in how well we're doing and, and vice versa so the two are completely interlinked you know wow well, hey, um, this is uh, this is your time to let everybody know where they can find you. So, if, if you haven't haven't heard about the book again, it's um, Saltwater in the Blood, um, and like I said, it's 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 beyond like if if you're like near an ocean or not. That the book is just so fascinating in terms of um, our our connection to the water. So um, please check that out. But also on on Iski's website, you can help support all of our causes. So Iski, if you want to just go ahead and let everybody know where they can find you, where they can find your book, and go ahead. Yeah, amazing. Thanks so much. So you can find me on my website, eskibritain.com or on Instagram at eskisurf. And in the States, the, the book is available from Penguin, Penguin Random House. So usually yeah, from all, hopefully from all good bookshops and online. And it's also available, I think, on Audible as audio, if you prefer to listen. Excellent. Well, hey, congratulations again. I, I really appreciate your time. 
you know, coming from uh, over across the pond. So, so I really appreciate that. And I want to thank everyone for listening. And also I want to mention Alan, our producer, making this all possible from Pretty Easy Podcast. And if you're looking to do a podcast, you already do want to, you need some support, please check them out. And uh, thanks again, Iski. I really appreciate it. And we'll see you all later. Thanks again.